Brothers and sisters, we have come to another transition point in the opening up of the book of Revelation. And um, it is the beginning of another series. There are basically three series, you can say, that each consists of seven elements. We have seen the seven seals. That was the first series, that book that had to be broken for these revelations to come about as to the judgments that we are now beginning to hear about more. Uh, then we have those that second series of the seven trumpets and then the bowls of, of fury of the wrath of God that, uh, that are the third series. Um, and uh, so when we read this passage now, as we have a moment ago, chapter 8, um, there's so much in there. Um, I, would su- I, would su- I would suggest, submit, uh, that there have been some of us who said, well, I hope Pastor Harms is going to talk about this or that verse and what that means. Uh, and I may well disappoint you in that regard, uh, especially when it comes to the specifics of the trumpets, you know, that blast and uh, all that sort of uh, really symbolic, highly uh, apocalyptic uh, imagery and language. You know, what does that mean? And can we apply that to today and so forth? Um, that could almost be a, a, an opportunity for distraction. Um, because my, my question as a pastor, and as a preacher, is always, what is the message here? What is the telos, the purpose of this, of this text? And uh, I'm drawn again back to a theme that is familiar to us by now, and that is prayer. <laughs> Worship you know, is so central to the book of Revelation that, again, um, that is um, where I'm uh, concentrating my focus. And that is to say, um, the way God honors the prayers of the saints through his judgments on the wicked uh, is our theme. God uses the prayers, once again, of his saints to prepare the world for his righteous judgments. And so we see three points. We see the silence that is in heaven. We see the censer that is being prepared at the throne of God. And then finally also uh, the censure on the nations. Um, So let us take a look at uh, this passage then under that theme with those three uh, uh, elements, those portions um, that divide the sermon message this morning. The silence in heaven, first of all. It says once again in verse 1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Kind of strikes me, anyway, as, as remarkable. Uh, wouldn't it have been more logical to just flow right into the beginning of the first trumpet? So here is this sort of interlude itself, a mini one, if you will, but an important one, because otherwise it wouldn't have been mentioned, correct? And so we hear this remarkable uh, comment by John as he receives the vision that there was, after the seventh seal being broken, by the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, that uh, there is this uh, half hour or approximately uh, half hour silence in heaven. Why does he mention it? Why is that important that there was silence in heaven? I don't know about you, but it strikes me as highly unusual. When we think of heaven and all that we can think about heaven has to come from God's word, first of all. You know, uh, I'm not interested in what you think about heaven 
and you shouldn't be interested in what I think about heaven. <laughs> you know, because we go off in all kinds of directions maybe, and that's probably not edifying. But we have clues, right? And so just the book of Revelation alone, uh, the visions of Ezekiel to mind as well. But uh, heaven is a place where it is rarely silent. Uh, it seems to me that there is always activity. There's always worship. And um, so silence uh, is, is remarkable because it is, a, as it were, an interruption in the flow of what ordinarily takes place. Silence can be a wonderful thing. Uh, when you are in uh, high country and you are just all by yourselves, maybe literally by yourself, and it's the chirping of you know, birds, uh, the rustling of the wind through the leaves of the trees in the fall, uh, being there by yourself is a, is, a, is a wonderful thing, that kind of silence. Um, there are people who seek to be in a place of silence. Uh, there are Catholic monasteries where you can be for a weekend or a week even and be there just by yourself. And the, and the, and the rule is that you do not talk. There to be quiet, supposedly for reflection and you know, introspection uh, and to be spiritually revived and renewed by that kind of silence. As a Protestant, I get kind of worried about that because uh, I want to hear noise. I want to hear gospel noise. Uh, I want to hear the word read, proclaimed, and so forth. But there is truth to that. There are moments that we need to retreat from life in this world. And that's why we're here, for example. We are, we are listening to the words of the Lord, spoken through a fallible servant. But nonetheless, the expectation is that you hear the truth of God's word proclaimed to you. Silence is a wonderful thing. But I think most of us get a little nervous when it gets silence for a little too long. Let's say that I'm in the middle of a sentence and... I'm not saying anything. And you say, what's wrong with this guy? Um, we're not comfortable with that. You, I remember when I grew up in the Netherlands, um, and if there was something like that, there was a live on TV, especially like uh, European championships and uh, speed skating, that would be something thrilling to me, uh, or uh, soccer, what have you, there would be an interruption. The television screen goes, as it were, blank. There is this, what, what they call the test screen. And it would have this uh, obnoxious noise, you know, and uh, how long is this going to take after 20 seconds? Uh, we, we are not quite comfortable with silence, with, uh, uh, you know, with interruption. Another thing that comes to mind is a little girl that Brenda and I hosted from the Bronx and uh, in Vermont. So imagine living in the Bronx. I don't know if you've ever been to the Bronx uh, in New York City, but uh, the Bronx uh, is a little bit, I'm not uh, you know, pointing fingers or anything, stepping on anybody's toes, but where we live in uh, that area of the town here, we hear sirens because there's a hospital located right near us. And so for obvious reasons, we hear sirens quite a bit. And we probably hear them every hour. 
at least. This little girl, about seven years old, Maya uh, was her name, and she was really uncomfortable with the quiet that she experienced when she lived at our house. She was not used to that at all because she was living in a city where there was always hustle and bustle and noise. So as, as human beings, we, we have different attitudes about silence. Uh, I would say that when we come to this picture of what is given us, by the way, of uh, John's vision about the silence in heaven, um, that it is a uh, marker in the text that calls our attention to something that is hugely important. And the importance of that silence is indicated by what follows. Because we see that there are seven angels who are before the throne of God. And they are given seven trumpets. And those they are going to blast momentarily. But then before it goes into talking about that blasting of the trumpets that reflect the judgments and the plagues of God on humanity, uh, we are hearing then about this silence, uh, about this angel, excuse me, verse 3, who came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much uh, to offer. The Lord Jesus has broken the seventh seal to introduce thereby what is now to follow. And so this silence is very important because it is the preparation for what is to follow, the seven blasts. And so therefore, it is appropriate that John mentions this time in heaven that was unusual, I would say unprecedented, that there would be silence in heaven when there's always worship going on and active, audible pronunciation, declaration of praise and worship to the living God. But that brings me then to the second point, and that is the censor that we hear about. And uh, I draw your attention to uh, verse 3 once again through 5 here. The another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints arose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. In the Reformed tradition, we're not uh, used to talking uh, much about censers, are we, in the liturgical setting. Uh, if you've ever gone to a Roman Catholic service, uh, if you've gone to a funeral service, like I have a uh, number of times, um, you may not quite understand everything that's going on in that service liturgically, but I recall seeing the priest officiating. He would uh, have a bowl in his hands that uh, is attached to a string that he holds in his hands, and he kind of waves it back and forth. And so the casket is there, and he goes like this, you know, and he goes all the way around the casket until he comes back to the beginning point, and, and what's that about? Um, well, it is, from the Catholic person's perspective, worship. It is a consecrating of this dead body to the ground in which it will be laid. Um, and that, that would then be an act of worship 
that, God, that would be pleasing in God's sight. Um, so a censer is used in, 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 in religious practice. Pagans use it as well, by the way, um, but in, 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 in Catholic tradition especially, um, I don't know about the Anglican tradition, but Catholic tradition uh, priests use censers. So censer is a bowl that contains something that is burning. Some material is burning and that produces this aroma of, of an odor that you may or may not like, frankly. Um, but um, so this is what we're seeing in this in this depiction uh, by uh, John of this angel who is holding that altar at the altar, uh, the holding the censer uh, at the altar, uh, where God is presumably you know seated on the throne, and so this is an act of worship uh, by the angel. We're also told that he that this censer that he is holding is a golden censer. Uh, I don't read very much into that, but I would say that the imagery of gold suggests that it is highly sacred and highly important. And only God is worthy to be given the, the gold you know, of the world, the best that we can offer him. For a person of Jewish origin, the early, early church that first read this text, uh, it would probably be a rather familiar imagery because in the tabernacle, in the temple, there were the morning and evening worship activities and that included the offering of incense to, to God. Um, another thing to note is that um, this angel who is doing this ministry of presenting before God worship is not identified. Uh, commentators have thought that maybe this Christ, uh, because he is offering, uh, and the prayers of the saints are included here, uh, he's bringing an offering that God then accepts because the, 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 the aromas, the, the smoke goes up, an indication that God is accepting uh, worship, that that would be Christ. But I side with those who say, well, if referring to this angel as another angel is Christ, I'm not so sure that the Apostle John would have referred to Christ as merely another angel. So we don't know who the angel is. We don't know his name, his identity, but we know that God has assigned him this task in preparation for the judgments to bring this worship that involves this incense that is offered and then, as it were, mixed, if I may use my own language here, but it, is, uh, uh, it includes the prayers of all the saints that are then um, placed on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. I think that we need to notice once again is the moment, uh, the sequence in which all of this is taking place. We're having um, this moment of worship, uh, this moment of pause, if you will, uh, before this... Uh, worldwide calamity uh, befalls the nations on this earth um, and so this worship is is highly significant because God uses the prayers of the saints evidently um, by which to uh, inaugurate and introduce these very severe plagues that are upon the world 
We are just hearing in this chapter about the first four trumpets. There are three to follow when we look into the next chapter. And the next chapter um, shows us these final three trumpets. And I don't want to go ahead. Uh, and, and, but, but there's intensification again. There's progression in the unfolding of the revelation. And so there we're going to see that demo demonic influences are, are operating. God himself calling upon them to, to, to bring them up from the abyss. And these demons are involved in bringing the plagues and the judgments upon the earth so that the people will say that, we, that they would rather die than live. And they do everything possible to die, and they can't. So we see intensification. Um, the drama intensifies, in other words. But for now, we are here uh, with this um, declaration that the worship is offered to the Lord. The Lord seemingly accepts that worship. And once that is uh, accepted from the Lord, the angel is ready then subsequently to pour out that which is inside the censer, the burning coals, if you will, of the fury of God, the wrath of God, they are about to be um, placed upon the earth. Psalm 3, verse 7 comes to mind. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. We don't often think about our role as Christians by way of application. We don't think often about our role as Christians uh, when it comes to prayer, that we can actively pray that God will bring his judgments on the wicked. Instead, we may have a sentiment, at least I do, you know, that sentiment that is in my heart that says, oh, isn't that in conflict with something that we hold dear? Pray for the lost. <laughs> but this is, God's word, and God's word is very clear, that God is the judge of the nations. And God used the prayers of the saints to introduce and bring upon the world his judgments. So don't be afraid. Don't confuse these things. Yes, we are no better than anybody else. Yes, God had mercy on us. And that's why we pray that God will have mercy on others, that they will also be called effectually and uh, they will call, be called into his fellowship and so forth, uh, that we call the union with Christ. Um, separate from that concern is God is holy and God uses his saints uh, in glory and the church on earth to pray. And we pray, Lord, come with your judgments. Because you glorify yourself through your judgments. And it is always, and, uh, it is always um, underneath the umbrella of God's sovereign dealings with this world. So when we pray for God's judgment to come upon the wicked, we're not cutting off somehow the opportunity for the wicked to be saved. Because the wicked will be saved according to God's plan and purpose. So you can pray, in other words, is my point. You can pray for God's judgments to fall on the nations. And I would, um, uh, in, in terms of our concern that this somehow violates this, this uh, calling that we have to pray for the unbelievers, um, I would remind us very uh, promptly, it's part of the second um, uh, point, but that this is partial judgment. 
uh, when it talks about one-third of this and one-third of that, this is not yet the final judgment. It is in preparation of the judgment so that the wicked will repent. And we see that described in the next chapter, that despite this intensification of judgments that fall on them, all these people that are suffering and dying, that the wicked will not repent. What a lesson, what a reminder for us. It's reminded, a reminder that is, um, has precedence in the Bible when we think about the Israelites in Egypt. Remember how the Israelites are under the, uh, under the, the, the sl- enslavement of Pharaoh and his house, his rule, his kingship. And we see how uh, God calls Moses to be the deliverer of his people. And um, he is called to go with the elders, it says, to go and, uh, and, and, and tell Pharaoh that he needs to let the people free. And so when he refuses, then the plagues come. And isn't it interesting that the first several, I think first four plagues uh, are preceded by the comment that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then a switch takes place. And I see heads nodding. And so you know what I'm going to say, probably. Then God hardened his heart. That is when it is no more possible to reach out to grace when grace is no longer available it is what theologians might call an intrusion of final judgment in a limited form you see here what will be true fully and globally in the end when God judges because he has judged in such a way that he has uh, made it impossible for those who persist in their wickedness to repent. I find it very arresting. I find it very um, um, uh, thought-provoking, emotion-provoking that uh, there is this real um, uh, reality that God uh, uh, is free here as well to uh, bring about this, um, this, this um, handing over of ourselves to our sin whereby he is the one then who in the process hardens our sin or hardens our hearts so that there is no opportunity left for repentance and faith so let that be an application for us as well that we take sin seriously um, we can't uh, be those who uh, cheapen God's grace by saying I'm saved you know and um, God knows that I'm weak and so forth, and uh, he understands, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, when we are Christians, when we're followers of Christ, we confess that it is the blood of Christ alone that saved us. It is the blood of Christ alone that procures our salvation for all eternity. But we are not saved so that we can go on sinning as if it doesn't matter to God. For without sin, uh, for without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. So we're called by God's word itself to be men and women who hate sin. And that is what we'll see actually in the second service in chapter 14 and 15, where it talks about uh, repentance and faith, that uh, a true believer is not a perfect believer. A true believer hates sin. And when you hate sin, you have an indication that you're a believer. And so with God's mercy and grace, he upholds you and he gives you strength to press on. That leads me to the third point, and that is the censure. Um, 
these four trumpets. Like I said, I'm not going to go into all the details, but the, the, one of the main uh, lessons that we draw from it is it is not final judgment yet. This is partial judgment. A third of the earth will be burned, trees and grass, it says. Uh, the second trumpet, a mountain, a whole mountain that drops into a sea. Uh, it conjures up the imagery of Psalm 46. Uh, if that were possible, the psalmist says, you know, you will still be there. Um, but uh, John sees it as in a vision happening, uh, a burning star that uh, uh, afflicts all the water sources in, on, on earth and it turns uh, like wo wormwood, it turns bitter and it kills people. And then finally that uh, the, the light that normally shines on earth is reduced by a third. All cosmic signals that will be uh, emitting from the heavens to earth to say, men and women, repent, turn to the Lord, flee to Christ, because there is a day coming when that is no longer possible. In conclusion, I turn to your attention to that last verse, because it is highly important as well. Verse 13, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth and the blasts of the other trumpets that the three, an the three angels are about to blow. Yesterday, um, Will and I uh, took a, a drive to uh, Littleton, of course, and uh, when we came back, uh, we talked a little bit on the driveway and uh, we looked up at the little tree in front of his house. It was an eagle. So th and it was not an eagle, it was a, a hawk. Correct? It was a hawk, so it was not an eagle. But uh, initially I thought, oh, this is an eagle. <laughs> but um, you know, this, 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 uh, this bird of prey uh, has its talons on a, another bird. And you know, you see how he picks that meat, you know, picks it away. And when we read that psalm a moment ago, where we have that same sort of imagery, you know, it's kind of gruesome, it's kind of gross, it's kind of unsettling your emotions that, uh, you know, that, that that is taking place in the context um, of judgment. Um, but here we have this eagle then. I had to uh, go to the internet this morning uh, because I don't know that I've ever heard an eagle. And so there was, uh, there was a little sound clip um, and it's, uh, it's a very high-pitched, fairly sh short uh, shriek or, or squeak. Uh, I won't try. Uh, <laughs> but uh, me, you living here in Colorado for so much longer than I have, you probably have heard one of those eagles. Uh, but it's kind of an, uh, not a happy sound, like, like other birds chirp, you know, and say, oh, isn't that wonderful? Uh, this is a bird of prey, and it, has, it is very focused. Uh, it is very focused on victims. <laughs> and so it, it hovers above, and it scans the terrain, and it has magnificent eyesight. Um, unbelievable how God designed and created that, of course. But um, when he locks in on a rabbit or something else that's down below, uh, the rabbit has no clue what's about to happen. Uh, and then this, this bird is, is making those noises. Well, back to the context of the vision, I would suggest that the sound that he produces, the crying with a loud voice, it says, uh, all of this is, by the way, language that reminds us that, uh, yeah, we take God's word literally, but... 
the genre of the text is apocalyptic, and so you, um, you use proper principles of interpretation to say, okay, here we have an eagle. Well, it's not a real eagle, but it's the imager of an eagle who apparently can speak. Well, that doesn't make sense to normal situations. So God has a purpose, a revelatory purpose, in revealing to us this verse, and it simply means to say that there are more judgments coming when this bird squeaks or screams, woe, woe, woe. You could say that each of those woes will accompany the three woes that are left, the three trumpets that are left that are worse, way worse than the first four that we have uh, discussed a little bit in this text. And so the blast of the other trumpets um, that the three angels are about to blow uh, are the blasts of these three woes. And therefore, I um, yeah, want to remind us again of how merciful God is, that uh, he brings us his woes. You know, if, if God brings his woe into your life, don't ignore it. Um, God loves his saints. God loves his people. And so when we fall in sin, when we turn our back on the Lord, and when we, like David and others in the history of salvation, have done horrible things even, um, when God uses his Nathans, you know, the prophets, uh, to declare upon us woe, that we would listen, that we would heed when God speaks to us his words of repent and believe, flee to Christ. It is gospel in essence, these woes are still to be considered as gospel proclamation. Gospel proclamation on the nations that they ought to repent, that they ought to flee to Christ and his cross. No world events that we witness today happen by chance. All these are part of God's final disclosures of his will and his purpose for this world because God has no joy in the perishing of anyone it says in God's word and so let us be men and women who walk humbly with our God who take sin seriously in our lives because we have been redeemed because we have been set free and may we also pray Lord come with your judgments because with the coming of your judgments we also know that Jesus is coming sooner or that Jesus is coming at the conclusion of all those uh, judgments that will befall the world. He uses your prayers to advance his purposes as he brings the history of this fallen world to a close, and he uses our prayers to prepare the saints to stand before him without shame and with great joy. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this gospel message. We thank you that the woes even are uh, sounds of joy to us because it shows the care and the concern that you have for this fallen world, that it might repent of its sins. Lord, we pray that you'll use your people as well, both to winsomely explain the scriptures to a person, to invite a person to church or to invite a person to a Bible study or to invite 
uh, a person to be prayed for, um, Lord, so that they might uh, understand what we are trying to explain to them now, but that they have no way of understanding because they are not regenerate. Lord, we pray that you use us to bring them to that point where their eyes are opened and their hearts are changed and they join us in this worship of yourself so that they might not perish but have everlasting life. Heavenly Father, this is our prayer and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.